You're listening to Character First, Episode 7, featuring Dr. Michael Hines, Superintendent of Public Schools for the Patchogue Medford School District on Long Island, New York. Dr. Hines is a leader in promoting whole child education in school and a frequent lecturer on the importance of physical, social, and emotional aspects of education. This episode is hosted by Derek Correa, CEO of Role Model Mentors. Welcome, Mike. Appreciate you being on the program. Thanks for joining us. Uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure, and uh, I look forward to this uh, much-needed conversation. Terrific. So tell us a little bit about your role as superintendent. How long have you been superintendent in Patchogue, Medford, and what did you do before becoming superintendent? Yeah, real, I guess I'll, I'll make this as brief as I can. This is my fifth year here uh, in the Patchogue, Medford School District, which is a pretty diverse school district, uh, at least for New York standards. If you took the demographics of New York and you shrunk it down, that's pretty much our our school district, which is great. We have around 8,000 students, 11 different buildings, seven elementary, three middle, one high school. And I'm really fortunate to be here, to be honest with you. I have a great board of education, wonderful staff, and the kids are wonderful. Um, really just uh, second to none. But before that, I was a superintendent in a very small school district um, for three years on Shelter Island, uh, which was a, a, another wonderful experience. But you know, when you're a superintendent there, and you only have 250 students in the whole district, you're you're not only the superintendent, you are everything, <laughs> you're pretty much everything <laughs> right. else. Uh, so you get to learn the, how school operates K through 12 from a much different perspective, certainly than the one that I have right now. So, and there are pluses and minuses to that, but I really started out, out over 22 years ago as an elementary teacher. That's my uh, pride and joy, really why I got into this, this uh, I, I, I hate to say profession, but this calling of serving kids. Um, so I taught at elementary for a number of years, and then I was elementary principal for a while, middle school principal, and just went up the ladder. So I've been very fortunate in my career. I'm not going to say lucky because there's a lot of hard work involved, but I've been very fortunate for sure. Yeah, of course, there always is. You make your own luck, as they say. I um, agree. One of, one of your major initiatives since, since you became superintendent there is something you call PEAS, or P-E-A-S, it's an acronym. So tell us a little bit about it and why it's so important to you. Sure. Uh, one of the things that I've noticed, and I know that we, we've spoken about quite a bit, actually, is that we are serving students, children, young adults, and not just here in New York, but everywhere around the world, I would believe, um, that are more anxious, depressed, and su suicidal than any generation before. And I've been working a lot with Dr. Peter Gray over the past several years as well, uh, who's, I will say, is someone I look up to. And a lot of his research stems um, looking at play longitudinally uh, from the 50s, 1950s to where we are right now. And when I say play, I mean, you know, back in the day when, you know, we would go home, we would play kickball for an hour, play football outside. And on the weekends, you'd be out for 10 hours straight, all those different things. They've been wiped away, as again, we've spoken about. But what I've seen from 30,000 feet, where I am right now as a superintendent, is that there are a lot of things that are taking place um, outside of the school, I believe, and inside school that have really impacted uh, a child's ability to self-regulate, to learn how to connect with others, to have difficult conversations like, you know, navigating through, you know, if there's conflict, a whole bunch of things. And over time, um, I came up with an acronym, as you said before, because I'm looking at the whole child, a holistic 
educational approach, which I think schools have moved away from. And basically, um, we're focusing on physical, emotional, academic, and social needs of kids within the school day, where for the most part, I think in many school districts, it strictly focuses on, on academic, but doesn't focus on the physical, emotional, and social aspects of what it means to be part of a uh, of an educational day. So what we've done uh, is we've changed the narrative, I believe, in the way we go about our business with a typical school day. Most notably at the elementary level, we started at the base of the pyramid, you know, as far as uh, what, what are some shifts that we wanted to see um, to, again, try to reduce uh, anxiety with kids to make sure they're not you know, not only anxious, but hopefully they're not depressed or suicidal. And that's when we decided to double recess because there's a lot of research that talks about the need to move and the need to have unstructured, you know, activities for kids where they decide what to do on their own without adults, you know, always being in their grill and <laughs> in their business yeah, right. of telling them what to do, you know, because I've said this many times, we tell kids what to do from the moment they wake up until the moment they go to bed and they don't have the ability to think for their own. And um, right. the only time we're not telling them what to do is when we do it for them, which is another, that's which right. is another problem. It is true. Or they're sleeping. And they're not hearing us, <laughs> you know, so so what are things we can do within the school day that allow for students, for children, young adults to make those choices for themselves, even if they're bad ones in a safe place. Right. So taking risks, how, how do we empower kids to do that, to take risks and to not fear failure because failure is part of learning and such a negative connotation. And so slowly over the past five years, we've tried to create these conditions that focus on physical, emotional, academic, and social growth and say academics is not the most important. Every one of those components, all four, are just as uh, important. And so, you know, from a budgetary standpoint, yeah, we can say, oh, yeah, that sounds really good. But if you don't put the money where, you know, where the mouth is, as far as making sure those things are in place, then it's really lip service. And I, I have to say the board has backed up a lot of these I'm not going to say crazy ideas, but they're certainly not atypical, I don't think, within within the school day. So, again, I'm, I'm really thankful. Even connecting those words that, you know, saying anything about academics not being important or as important as, you know, as borderline blasphemy in, uh, in education. <laughs> so, I mean, you've got to hit, it's great to have a supportive board, but you still must have a lot of challenges in, in implementing a program like this, considering, you know, how structured education needs to be and all of the programs and all the milestones and benchmarks that you need to deliver against at, at all the various grades. What are some of the biggest challenges you're facing? Yeah, I would say, well, initially, um, and, and I agree with everything you just said, it's true. I mean, it's a, it's one thing to have the board supportive, you know, the next step is hopefully your executive team, meaning district office is, is supportive of those ideas. Your building principles are supportive, right? You need those um, supports in place, or at least a majority of them. I can't say it's everybody, um, but you need at least a majority. And then the teachers, you know, the teachers need to be on board because right now, you know, teachers are evaluated um, based on student performance. So if that's not going to be the only thing you get up for in the morning, then how's that going to impact, you know, teacher uh, evaluation? So there's a lot of things to contend with. And then there's the community, you know, sometimes, sometimes they're like, you know, all you care about is play and yoga and mindfulness. And when are the kids actually learning something? You know, why don't right. you focus on, you know, on those important things? And I, said, I just had a visualization of a parent at the mic at a board meeting saying that, yeah. <laughs> saying that very yeah. thing. 
Yeah, well, yeah, and, and um, or on social media, you know, which I think is is potentially sometimes ten times worse because then everyone then adds on to that conversation. But the bottom line is, um, how do you deal with that? You you have to create a, a common vision and mission for what it means to be in school. What's the purpose of being here? And the purpose of being in school for a child is not to just get high test scores. That doesn't define who a child is. And I certainly believe it doesn't define who a teacher is. So our job, I believe, is to create optimal conditions for children to figure out and to draw their own conclusion as far as where their passions are and what their talents are. And the only way to do that is if they take an inward journey so they get to know themselves and they stretch themselves and they try new things. So that's where I'm coming from, you know, and, and again, I, I, I back it with research as far as um, why this is important, why this works, how it works. You know what I'm saying? Because ultimately, in the end, if you focus on physical, emotional and social needs, what you're going to see is an augmentation of grades because those three areas are developed. And that's what I try to tell people. If you focus on these three things, the byproduct will be they're going to have better test scores, you know, as opposed to just focusing on test scores. So that's that's been it's a shift. It's a mindset shift. And that takes a while. <laughs> it's totally true. And, and the reality is, even when you're going to college or even if you go to grad school, you're still going to live a whole lot of years of your life without ever taking another test. Right. I mean, there's, oh. a whole lot, there's a whole lot more that's happening for the rest of your life than taking tests. Uh, no question. There, there is. Absolutely. And, and to be honest with you, you know, most of the things we do in life um, are not A, B, C or D answers. You know, they're not convergent thinking types of answers. You know, there's a problem. There's only one solution. That's just not the case. And what we need to do also is think of different ways for kids to experience real life situations within the school. And we talk about divergent thinking, which is you have one problem, but there are multiple ways to attack that. The best way to give kids the tools to, to think that way is to make sure that their basic needs are being met, that they are not as anxious as they could be or can be, and to make sure they, they are empathetic and they can work well with others because those are the skills they need to be successful once they leave the system after 13 years. You know, they have to know how to, how to I don't care how smart you are, if you can't work with someone, uh, good luck. It's gonna be yeah. really, really difficult for you to, to, to be successful. You can have 140 IQ. And I know some people who do, who, you know, can't stand being around people. Well, good luck so with that. True. So true. You know. So, so you mentioned one of the one of the implementation aspects of PEAS that you mentioned was doubling recess time, and and that's pretty straightforward and easy to understand how that would benefit kids and how it fits in in this whole child notion. What are some of the other examples of of what's being done differently now that you're five years in, and especially you know like an example at the middle school or high school level, which is probably different than perhaps an example at the elementary school level. It is. Yeah. And, and I will say before I, I answer that question, shifting at the secondary level is a different animal than shifting at the elementary level. Much more difficult, I believe. Um, belief systems are a lot more entrenched. For the most part, elementary teachers are generalists. But when you're you know working with middle school or high school teachers, you know, they are content area specialists. And everyone thinks their content area, for the most part, is the most important. So, you know, <laughs> right. it's 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 a, it's a different way to you know try to move something forward. But anyway, really quickly, some of the things that we've done is 
at the elementary, then I'll move, I'll graduate to the high school, is we started a before school play club um, at our elementary schools um, that has been very successful. So every Friday, <laughs> excuse me, in the, in the fall and in the winter, uh, for an hour before school, kids can come up to 100 students per school, K through five, they all play together. That means kindergartners are playing with fourth graders, with fifth graders, um, unstructured, meaning they can do whatever they want as long as not hurting each other. And, and, and I mean anything, they can play outside, they can play inside. And we have adults there not to supervise, but to not intervene. And that has been highly successful because you talk about that unstructured where adults aren't telling kids what to do. It's been really amazing. Actually, we're starting some research with Long Island University starting next year um, as far as um, really trying to, to gauge how effective it is. Right now, we have qualitative feedback from teachers saying they can totally tell the kids who were here before school at Play Club and kids who were just arriving. It's really cool. Uh, we, meditation, mindfulness, uh, as, as we've discussed before, we have uh, meditation mindfulness rooms um, at the elementary and the middle school. So we have a yoga instructor who's um, a teacher paid by the district to push into classes um, every single month. So that means every single student has eight meditation or mindfulness uh, lessons uh, every year um, and sometimes more depending on, on, on the teacher if, if they want to do more. And that's been highly successful. You know, we also have dedicated space for kids to go to, we call them tranquility rooms, where they can decompress if they find that they're about to have a solar flare and they're not <laughs> having a good day. You know, they go there, they, they breathe, they uh, bring themselves back down to earth, and then they re-enter uh, the classroom, which has been great. Um, at the middle school level, we've started a few things called leadership podcasts where uh, students learn how to create their own podcasts, kind of like what you're doing here. And they interview um, school leaders um, throughout either the district and or in, you know, in our community, uh, which has been really great. So they learn a whole bunch of different skill sets. They learn how to empathize and to, to, to understand, you know, different people's perspectives as they're as they're doing that. From, and, and from a technology standpoint, it's a different uh, set of skill sets, which is which is really powerful. We have something called the LECRO program. We've been working with Menor Skenazy and Peter Gray and Jonathan Haight, actually, he has a has a book out, um, uh, the coddling. I, I believe uh, the name is escaping me now, but it's about the coddling of, of of kids, and and what the impacts are. Basically, the Let Grow program, as I think I've said to you before, is that whatever you know, if you, if you're in fifth grade or sixth grade now, what what did you do? You know, as a parent, what were you allowed to do in the '70s or '80s or maybe even '90s? at that age, but these kids can't even think of doing that now, right? So kids can't really ride their bikes to the mall or they can't ride their bikes to the store or they can't operate a lawnmower anymore. Or they can't, it's a bunch of, I can't lists or they can't lists. And what we've asked parents to do from a homework assignment is to allow their child to do something that as parents, they were allowed to do when they were their age once a week. I love that. Uh, that it that's is amazing. Brilliant. Oh, it's and it's free. You're listening to Character First, Episode 7, featuring Dr. Michael Hines, Superintendent of Public Schools for the Cashog Medford School District on Long Island, New York. Today's episode is sponsored by Role Model Mentors. I was going to actually ask you, Maya, I was going to ask you, like, what are, it's great that you're doing all these initiatives in school. I was actually going to ask you, what are some things that, that parents can do to better support their their children's social and emotional development and like that's just that, that's, that's a perfect simple <laughs> thing that list is you know 
like I, I kind of got to figure out where to draw the line. Like I probably wouldn't let my kid go down a huge hill on a big wheel um, at max speed with no helmet on. <laughs> but <laughs> but somehow but I did that a bunch of times, and, and here I am. <laughs> That's right. It's it's really really true. And and you could probably think a whole host of things that you were able to do that we would never allow our kids to do. And it's not just us. I mean, it's it's everywhere. It's and actually. Over. It is the world over, and but the problem is there are laws out there that that don't allow parents to make to allow their kids to do some of these things, and so you you see some states that are out there right now um, that are actually pushing back against you know um, parents getting in trouble for you know a kid walking home from school. Like there are some school communities or um, areas in, in different states where parents get arrested if they're child is walking home from school and they're in like first or second grade. So, so it's, it's, it's to the extreme, but then you'll have parents that say, well, times are really dangerous and, you know, kids are kidnapped left and right. But if you look at, and I mean it, you look at all the statistics, it actually says we are safer than any generation before. That's 100% true. Yeah. And it's not, and it's, that's to your point, it's not even just an American phenomenon because they did a study recently in Great Britain and they asked parents of 10 year olds, you know, how, how far did they go when they were 10 from their house unsupervised to go to the sandlot or the fishing hole or bike to a friend's house? And, and the average was eight miles. And then they asked those that they were all parents of a 10 year old and they asked them how far they let their 10 year old go now. And the uh, the average answer was the end of the block. I the mean, end of the just, block. The end of the block. That's just an <laughs> unbelievable difference uh, of you know pulling away any agency for kids to to be able to make their own decisions and to make mistakes and learn from them and to be That's right. you know just that perpetual parental adjacency that we talked about, which is you know simultaneously stops kids from really having a fulfilled childhood and at the same time you know, short changes their development towards independence. It's like the, the, the worst double whammy. That it really is. It really, and, and that's in one generation, right? So you, you, you think about that. I mean, in such a short time period. Right? right? Lock our kids in the basement. By, that's know, what I'm saying, man. Right? <laughs> and my grandkids, they'll have, like, they'll have like these crazy collars on with microchips in there under their lip or something. <laughs> it, I, I, I just cannot believe. I have to say, though, what's happening here in our school district. So I had two points of pushback with this initially, right? So the first one with moving forward was a liability issue was, well, what if something happens? It's a homework assignment. You're telling the parents, you know, you want kids to do X or to, you know, to do things with them they've never done before and something happens. And so, yeah, okay, it is a liability issue, but okay. What's the liability if kids are handicapped when they're 18 years old and they've never gone down the block before, or they've never went to the store before to buy something on their own, or they've never mowed a lawn before, or they never played some tag before for more than five minutes without us watching them. Like what's the liability for that? It's so tough that you have to deal with that, right? Because to your point, the the stats about safety of kids are actually um, very much point to that it's much safer than it was a generation ago. But that point, you know, is the opposite. We're definitely a more litigious society than we yeah, were right. a generation ago. And, that, and that's, that's a really important. that's a very good point. That's a really good point. Well, the, the other thing we had to somewhat contend with, more school at the middle school level, I would say, than the elementary is well, homework is very important. 
And if not, they're not doing their times tables and they're not doing, you know, whatever it is they have for homework and all you give them is a let grow assignment, that's academically unsound. And so, which of course translates to, I don't believe in high standards for kids and all those different things. So, which, which again, I, I just, I, I just don't agree with it. And, and the research on homework and what kind of homework uh, and the amount of homework, I mean, it's, it's so pointed to the fact that we overdo homework to the point where it's counterproductive. Uh, it's diminishing I, I, I go to bed most nights before my 14 year old because she's still uh, which up is a very good idea. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, right. That's so, insane. That's insane. It, it, it is insane. So we dedicate one night a week, you know, to a let grow assignment. And at first it was resistance. But now I have to be honest with you. I think the middle school, most of them, not all of them, teachers see the benefit of it. You probably, you probably still wear Kevlar, though. I, I wear a scarlet letter. I have a scarlet letter that I wear around for, for the most part. But, you know, as much as... The, the, and when I say that, I really do. In the scheme of things, it's minor, 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 minor pushback. It's pockets of people who say X, Y, or Z. Because ultimately, in the end, when we are trying to do things that are related to P's, to physical, emotional, academic, and social growth, the beauty of it is it's tied into our vision and mission. So we're not doing this, you know, just to do it, just to see if it works. It's it's tied into uh, the reason why we're here, whether it's as a governing board Board of Education trustees, myself as a superintendent, we have defined what we believe what's most important for kids. And I believe it's the well-being of kids. Kids can always learn academics, content, but to, to have a well-being perspective from an organization where, I, you know, again, the conditions are that um, kids are allowed to explore and to try new things and to fail and to figure things out on their own. To me, that's a gift that keeps on giving. It's such a powerful idea. And it's, you know, it's kind of crazy that it requires, you know, some renegade or maverick uh, activity to to make that. So, so last question, Mike, you recently visited Finland. I, I thought that was so interesting that you went to Finland and met with a, a number of educators and administrators. I was curious, what made you choose going to Finland? And what are some of the, the most powerful insights you learned from that? trip? Sure. Um, <clears throat> so Finland, just to give a very brief uh, understanding as far as, you know, why is Finland somewhat revered? Basically, since 2000, since, since 2000, um, 15 year olds around the world internationally have been given assessments in language and mathematics and in science. And it happens every, every few years. But again, it's only started since 2000. They're called the PISA um, exams, the program for international student uh, assessment. So to make a long story longer, uh, when they first started doing this years ago, and, and, and America is part of that consortium of students who, who take these tests. Uh, Finland st was number one in the world. All right. So the, they were number one in the world. And now, you know, 19 years later, they range from one to like three or four, uh, depending, you know, Singapore sometimes takes over or, you know, other countries sometimes take over. Never America, though. Um, we're, we're traditionally around 23, 25, 27. Um, but, there are, but, but there are other reasons why. And I'm not blaming us as a society, I believe. I, I, I blame poverty and I, and I blame our, our focus. Um, but that's a whole nother conversation. But so why Finland? So everything that Finland does, for the most part, is the opposite of what we do in America. Uh, which I find really fascinating. Their school day is shorter. Their school year is is shorter. 
Their students have breaks throughout the day. They focus on CTE once they get to the high school level, meaning education that's required. Uh, Compulsory education is only from first to ninth grade in Finland. Um, After that, they can go two different routes. They can go to university high school or they can go to a CTE high school, which gets them ready. But CTE is really revered there, career and technical education. They have over 350 prospects or jobs to choose from if they so choose to go in that direction. Here, if if your kid goes to BOCES or a CTE program, you know, they're, they're looked at as less than. There, they're looked at as like they're doctors or attorneys or you know, you know, some other profession that is somewhat revered, maybe not attorneys. I shouldn't say that. I'm just kidding. So <laughs> it's it's a different mindset. Their their main focus for their kids is well-being. They don't standardize kids and they don't have kids take standardized tests. There are no standardized tests that kids take from a national or a local perspective. Here in the United States, every kid has to take a standardized test in English language arts and math in grades three through eight, that's a federal mandate. And then they have a whole bunch of exit exams they have to take, whether you're in Connecticut or in New York. In New York, it's five. Um, There, they take one exam in their last year. That's it. So they do things totally different. And I I said to myself, all right, they do it different. And their teachers, by the way, are trained like NASA astronauts. Like their, their, their teacher preparation program is highly competitive. And I wanted to see what that looked like. So I went with a New York Times bestseller who happens to be a Fulbright scholar. I went there. uh, The board approved for me to go on this trip. And um, I got to see about 75, 80 hours worth of Finnish schools up close, speaking to, as you said, the uh, Finnish director of education, who's the top policymaker in the whole country, to teachers, to parents, to university professors, to deans. I mean, I, I spoke to everybody. And in two different parts of Finland. So it, it was consistent when I, when I asked the same questions. It didn't matter what school I was in, what region I was in. It was they cared about the well-being of their kids and they wanted to make sure whatever passions and talents they had, that they were fulfilled. Test scores did not get them up in the morning. They allowed kids to use power tools when they were in first grade <laughs> to build things. <laughs> I mean, it, I'm like, oh, my gosh, if I if I said I want kids to use an electric saw in first grade, I, I my license would be revoked. <laughs> so it, it's it's just a totally different mindset, totally different culture. But they trust kids, but they push them in ways that we don't hear. So there may be a few more Finnish people walking around without some fingers. But on the on the whole, <laughs> they are much they are much more uh, well adjusted emotionally and socially and uh, with resilience. So that's probably a realistic trade off. Oh, that's fine. I, I would say so. Yeah, it's <laughs> it, it. You know, but I, I will say this: when I when I was there, you know, I, I tell and I say this, you know, in the most loving way. I was bipolar. I was so happy and and just thrilled to see all the beautiful things happening. And then I was equally depressed because I know that they weren't happening back home. And when yeah. I say back home, I mean, you know, regardless of what state that we're in, maybe in pockets of schools, certainly in the United States, but it's certainly not pervasive everywhere. Well, the the great thing, Mike, is that you are doing something about it. And, uh, you know, the old saying, Rome wasn't built in a day. I, I think you should and are probably are terribly proud of the progress you're already making there. I think it's fantastic. This has been a great interview and really thank you for your time and and all your efforts on this front. No, I I appreciate the opportunity and uh, I look forward to working with you in the future. 
Thank you for listening to Character First. Character First is hosted by Derek Korea.